Hello and welcome to this alternative audio commentary on Ace in the Hole, the 1951 picture directed by Billy Wilder. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Ace in the Hole to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown in a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. I'm watching a Region 1 DVD here. It is the Criterion Collection DVD. And there is a Criterion logo that comes right before the start of the movie. When that Criterion logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you. And that'll allow us all momentarily to hit the play button together and watch the movie in perfect synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, once again, it's just after the Criterion Collection logo has faded to black. Looks like it's about 13 seconds in on my DVD here. So I'm going to say three, two, one, play, and that'll be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. So let me get your finger on that button here. Ready? Three, two, one, play. And we're in. There's the Paramount logo. And Kirk Douglas's credit. Another uneventful credit sequence. Although it makes sense, right? Uh, because the character in this movie is lamenting the fact, for a good long time in the movie, he's lamenting the fact that Nothing ever happens in the neck of the woods that the movie takes place in, in New Mexico and Albuquerque, and that it's kind of just this wasteland. So the uh, the gravel, the bare gravelly dirt ground uh, that it backgrounds these credits, I guess, kind of makes sense. I'm excited to be doing this movie. Um, there's e costumes by Edith Head once again. Uh, where would Hollywood costuming be without her? Um, I'm really excited to be doing this because this is just such a fascinating movie in, in Wilder's filmography and in, in the career of, uh, of Kirk Douglas, its star. And I'll ex explain a little more about that coming up. You notice at the beginning here, when he rolls into town, he's r rolling into town in a in a, a broken down jalopy of a car. But uh, Douglas Douglas's portrayal of of Charles Tatum, Chuck Tatum, the uh, the anti hero of the movie, the protagonist, um, still has that swagger, even though the car is broken down. He still sort of has this chin out, puffed out chest swagger to him. And that is, that's going to be the main sort of characteristic of the character. This is the first of several sort of what we would now call uh, ethnically insensitive or uh, remarks. He says how to the Native American worker. And this whole, his whole entrance, his whole sashaying into the, uh, into the newsroom here. Again, the, the swagger, he's sort of uh, 
has this look on his face that he's he's condescending to what he sees and and sort of delighted by it at the same time almost like it's it's quaint and disgusting to him all at once or quaint and objectionable to him all, all at once yeah but that that whole his his walking into the newsroom the way he did is going to be recapitulated kind of at at the end of the movie we've got a, a bunch of gags coming up that are terrific including the the lighting of the match on the typewriter it's sort of one of the little, I don't know, literary or or um, figurative uh, things that, that Wilder and his co-writers sort of threw in there to r- reflect Tatum's sort of, not disdain for his profession, but, but his kind of, uh, uh, his cavalier attitude toward the tools of journalism uh, symbolized by the, by the typewriter, maybe. <laughs> it's a great gag. The... First, uh, say the first reel or the first 15 to 20 minutes of this movie are sensationally written. I mean, this is this is just and it, it performance is a lot of it, too. Uh, I mean, I'll talk about Douglas later and just how how good he is. But um, the way this is all written is incredible. Um, it's everything is is a, a quip or a hard boiled kind of um a uh, clever line. Every, every insult has this sort of um, zinger quality to it, um, and, and it's just it's densely packed at the beginning of the movie. And a lot of pipe is laid here at the beginning of the movie because the idea, I think, is to to get us to our inciting incident as quick as possible, which is. Um, Tatum finding out that this guy Leo is trapped in the in the cliff in the in the cave there and um, in order to do that you think about everything in the first 10 minutes here think about everything that's going to happen and how fast it happens yet it doesn't to me it doesn't feel hurried at all Um, he has to show up in town after being fired from every news newspaper on the east coast and in the midwest he has to roll into town in his jalopy he has to talk his way into this job he has to be on the job because there's going to be sort of a time lapse. He, he, he's going to be on the job for, uh, I think, a, a year. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll have that melt where he uh, goes forward in time. And then he has to go out on this, on this, uh, on this uh, assignment to cover the, uh, the rattlesnake hunt. And then he finds Leo. So all that has to be done, and, it, and it, yet it doesn't feel hurried, and, uh, and it doesn't feel rushed. And I think, I think Wilder is so good at that kind of thing. Um, it, just like the typewriter gag, I, I, along with this wonderful dialogue and the way it's performed in the in the first leg of the movie here, we have some of these just highly memorable gags. This idea of, it's, it always makes me laugh, and I bring it up to people like, uh, twice a year I bring this up to people. Just this idea of um, uh, cautious. A cautious man is a man who wears both a belt and suspenders, and that's going to be used uh, not just for the joke we just had, but for like a visual uh, kind of sight gag coming up. The man who plays Mr. Boot uh, is Porter Hall, and when I went to a revival screening of this picture, um, the audience was a smart audience, and they sort of there were murmurs and and laughter of of recognition when uh, when we saw Porter Hall come on the screen uh, right here because he 
is, of course, uh, the man from Medford, Medford, Oregon, in Double Indemnity. And he's one of three sort of, uh, sort of two um, uh, oblique kind of references to Double Indemnity. And I would say one sort of direct reference that Wilder makes to Double Indemnity, which is um, the Pacific All Risk Insurance Company, or um, I think that's what it's called, Pacific All Risk is mentioned in the movie and uh it's just a, one of the delightful little touches and porter hall is he does a he does a good job now the part of the point um you notice the way they were both shot um we had a we had some low angles on douglas and uh give me one second here so i can click this bullshit off my screen um sorry we had some low angles on Kirk Douglas, and that um, sort of makes me think that this is, in a way, not not just because of its journalistic subject matter, but uh, this kind of a sister movie to Citizen Kane. Uh, the the low angles on Doug, Douglas, the high angles on Mr. Boot when he was at his desk, um, and part of the idea in that initial exchange with Mr. Boot is that is that. Uh, Mr. Boot is the paragon of journalistic ethics. He might be in a small town and he might be a small time editor, but he has principles and ethics and, and sort of he doesn't have this cavalier attitude uh, and this thirst for action that that Douglas has, that Charles Tatum has. I mean, just some really clever stuff in that exchange. We're going to have a, one of the great scenes right here, a great monologue. Uh, the sort of what do you do for noise around here? Uh, this complaint, these complaints he has that seem random almost, but they're, they're so specific that they, you know, the way he thirsts for the city, the, the garlic pickles, the, uh, the, the fact that, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Deverich doesn't know, uh, Yogi Berra, as we just saw there, uh, she thinks, uh, <laughs> she thinks it's a, a religion and, and, uh, you know, this, this sort of, um, I think there are very few movie stars who can do what Douglas is doing here. I mean, he's not, I don't, I mean, he's chewing the scenery. He's, he, it's a big performance. It's a loud performance, but it's right for the character. There you go. What do you do for noise around here? You see that extra he's talking to at the desk there laughing. <laughs> um, he's, he's already kind of won the heart of Mrs. Deverish. And, and we're going to have a line here about the, the 80th floor. How come we don't have an 80th? You don't have, hey, there you go, an 80th, no 80th floor. You can jump off when you feel like it. <laughs> but you think, you think, I mean, just really clever stuff. In, in the exchange with Mr. Boot that we've already had where he um, he says, how'd you like to make $200? I, I normally work for 250 and I'll take 50 That way you make 200 And it's very important because of a scene that comes later in the movie, we have to see Mr. Boot as the, the as, as I said, the paragon of, of journalistic ethics. So he tells Tatum at the end of there, of course, uh, you're going to, uh, uh, we pay 60 to our reporters here. So he could have paid Tatum 50. That's what Tatum asked for. But he's going to pay him 60 because that's what they pay here. And Mr. Boot is an honest person. Tatum, of course, in that position would have would have saved himself $10 on his payroll a week. The, the gag, uh, the sight gag, by the way, of course, is is that Tatum has now resigned himself to being here in a way, or maybe in an act of weird protest, uh, uh, is wearing both a belt and suspenders like Mr. Boot. 
the Mrs. The, or the Miss Deverich character is funny to me because on the one hand, she is, she, she almost literally clutches her pearls there. Oh, by the way, look at how, look at how carefully all this whole scene is staged. Uh, we don't think of Wilder as like a Hitchcock type who, who, um, uh, is very dynamic with his shots and compositions, but look at how beautiful this is with, with Mr. Boot coming in behind, uh, Tatum and it all feels natural. It's very, just very lovely. Um, but yeah, Mrs. Deverich is weird because she's on the one hand this like professional woman who who has a column in the newspaper, albeit a, a domestic column. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we hear that she's she's embroidered those tell the truth signs, right? Uh, uh, so she's she's sort of, despite being a prof- professional woman, she it, it buys into the sort of gender norms of the uh, uh, that would have been familiar to the time. Again, Mr. Boot is um, was accusatory of uh, of uh, Tatum there, right? Uh, he sees the bottle, he sees the shot glass, he figures, hey, uh, it's a logical thing to do that to 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 say, oh, somebody must be drinking. But he finds that, of course, Tatum was building out of out of matches and toothpicks this boat, this little sailboat that goes in the bottle, and uh, it, it it's a signal of of Tatum's. But but what I mean is that. Um, uh, it shows that Mr. Boot is uh, still trusts Tatum, trusts him to be on the wagon because there's there's no drinking here. So it, he he wasn't overly suspicious. It, it, it's fair for him to assume that someone's drinking if if there's a bottle there. He just didn't see that the bottle had a, a boat in it, and he and he treated he joked with Tatum uh, about his error. He sort of apologized to him. Um, so it's a sign of how earnest and honest Mr. Boot is. At the same time. Uh, it's sort of a signal, not just of Tatum's boredom in this place that he was building his little ships and bottles, but it's sort of a, again, a literary kind of symbol of, of, uh, that Tatum himself kind of feels trapped, you know, this idea that he should be a sailboat out there sailing, finding the action and, and, uh, instead he's in Albuquerque and he feels closed in or trapped, uh, it would, you know, just nice little touches like that that Wilder is so good at, and we, we're we're still in the in the first leg of the movie here that I think is so beautifully written and so beautifully wrought by by the actors. I'll I'll go into a whole spiel later about how, uh, especially at this time in Hollywood, actors who were the only or stars, movie stars like Douglas, who were the only movie star in a movie. Uh, where there were no other movie stars, it, it had uh, the good movie stars had a certain dynamic that had a certain ability to carry a movie in which they were the only star, and I'll I'll sort of describe more about what I mean by that. I think it's a fascinating thing. That hat he's wearing um, reminds me of Lust for Life when he played uh, the Minnelli movie, Vincente Minnelli movie when he played uh, when Douglas played Vincent Van Gogh. It's the same sort of hat, very different kind of performance, of course. Uh, Douglas. Uh, I think had terrific range, uh, you know. That, I mean it. I mean, there are so many actors who or movie stars at this time who could not have played this part. Gary Cooper could not have done this. Uh, I think Cary Grant could not have done this, and it would not have been the kind of role that people would have liked to see Cary Grant do. At this time, he might have been um, a little, a little older than you'd want Tatum to be, but not much. Lots of lots of location shooting uh, in Gallup and around Gallup, New Mexico, in this movie, and you see here just the uh, uh, 
these beautiful shots. It was it was a lot harder to shoot in obviously bright sunlight, natural sunlight, and the equipment that Wilder was using in in fifty one. Um, and I think I think it's sort of the exposures of of a lot of these shots sort of capture the bright sunlight, but um, give tremendous texture. the The director of photography was uh, Charles Lang on this picture. The movie has some uh, has some pacing things to it. Uh, you notice in that the first few scenes where where I we're still we're still in setup mode here, right? We're still in, but the first sort of three or four scenes uh, moved like gangbusters really fast, and now we've had some lulls here. And the movie sort of um, every time we sort of enter the cave in the movie too, it, it seems like things slow down. And, and I think Wilder's natural inclination was to not move at sort of his girl Friday speeds, but to move along at a good click. Um, we're coming up on our inciting incident here, uh, which I would mark at the point at which, uh, Tatum learns that, uh, learns that something that this guy is trapped and this, that this could be, uh, something more worthwhile than the rattlesnake hunt that he was en route to with Herbie here. Herbie's played by, uh, uh, an actor named Robert uh, uh, Arthur. Robert Arthur. Uh, yeah, I, I would mark it not as at the time he meets. Uh, well, you could even mark it here at the moment he meets. Uh, it, it's the same thing. Uh, he learns about uh, the uh, Leo in the cave uh, under the mountain. Uh, she says there, uh, Jan Sterling here. He learns about it from Leo's wife. So. Uh, this is kind of our inciting. Everything before this point has really been uh, set up that uh, really does a good job of letting us know tons of background. Uh, his whole sort of resume, uh, Tatum, and all the jobs he's been to, and his, uh, his whole personality, the personality of this place, the milieu, uh, the way uh, you know he doesn't fit in. This is one of the great, to me, one of the great fish-out-of-water movies. Uh, Tatum doesn't belong here, and, and he lets everybody know it, which I love. Um we have here in this shot with uh, the two shot with uh, Tatum and and Lorraine, Leo's wife, uh, Leo's sort of uh, unhappily unhappily married wife. Um, just with these glances that uh, and glances and body language um, from Tatum and and Lorraine, setting up the sexual tension that's gonna sort of. As the rising action moves in the second act, that's going to come to a, a head between those two characters. We have uh, Papa Minosa, Leo's father there, uh, 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 played by uh, John Burks. And uh, that uh, bumbling cop there is going to, um, <laughs> going to meet the wrath of, of Tatum. And this is... Um, where the journalistic ethics start to get tossed by the wayside by Tatum. Uh, until now, he's been all talk, right? But now we're going to see him actually, you know, I mean, it has to do with the duty of a reporter, right? The duty of a reporter is to report, is to be objective, is to to not, uh, you know, to to report on the events, not to take part in them or drive the, the drama of the events or make things happen or get involved. Uh, I mean, uh, very generally speaking, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> 
And Tatum immediately doesn't just get involved here, but he immediately begins to take charge. Again, uh, here, Wilder with the compositions and the, uh, the subtle sort of actors moving in the frame and, and um, re-blocking their, their positions and uh, very slow camera movements that uh, are, are just, just beautiful, but uh, never, you know, he never moves the camera in a way that's intrusive or not telling the story. I, I always sort of couple uh, Wilder with uh, Sidney Lumet in that way. You see here, he's uh, Tatum. Uh, this is sort of an unrealistic scene. I, I, even a bad cop would not allow himself to be treated this way by some uh, by a man like Tatum. He grabs things out of the cop's pocket, uh, sort of bullies him here, and the cop is just <laughs> uh, just doesn't have anything to say, but. What makes, uh, I, I had a, a friend of mine ask me, you know, when we saw this movie, what makes Tatum want, want to get involved here, you know, and, and uh, what is he trying to do? I mean, is he already trying to turn this into a story that he can, that can shoot him to the big time or back to the big time? And I said, he's, he's just a, he's a little bit of a trickster character at the same time that he's this sort of anti-hero and this sort of guy who's redeemed only when it's too late in the story, you know, he's, He's, uh, he, he just likes action, you know, um, it's sort of, it's, it's not some men just want to watch the world burn. It's some men just want to, uh, uh, get involved in everything and be where the action is. And, and, uh, you know, some men just want to walk the casino floor. So, um, we've had our inciting incident. Um, Wilder uh, wrote this uh, screenplay with uh, some co-writers, uh, the foremost of which were a man named uh, Lesser Samuels and a man named, uh, what was the other guy? I just had his name, uh, Newman, Walter Newman, of course. Um, I mentioned Gallup, New Mexico, where this was shot. Uh, much of this was shot on location, except uh, most of this stuff when you're inside the cave and some other interiors were shot on the Paramount lot, uh, and it's pretty seamless. Uh, I mean, uh, this, this, I believe, what we're looking at here is Paramount, and it seems to me that, that it's, it's, it looks pretty good, you know? Uh, I mean, the, you can quibble with the, the lighting, and when dust and dirt falls from above them, it, it's clearly being poured by someone, but um, it, it's, again, pretty, I, I think pretty seamless. I uh, got a couple of quibbles with the movie. I, I, I rank it near the top of uh, my personal ranking of, of uh, Wilder's filmography, but I don't think it's flawless. I've got some quibbles with it. Um, but I don't think the flaws in the movie have anything to do with why it wasn't successful commercially. I'll, I'll talk about that, too. By the way, what as they go sort of down into the abyss here to find Leo, uh, and, and I love that Tatum seems to have no fear, that I think the reason Herbie comes with him is so that we can see the difference in their sort of the slight difference in their demeanor the young Herbie uh the the, the sort of youth that will be corrupted by Tatum uh uh is sort of more apprehensive and Tatum is is just doesn't doesn't seem to give a shit he's he's gonna do this I'll, I'll get into pointing out the flaws but I just want to say as they as they go down to where Leo is um, 
the dialogue that we've had here between Herbie and Tatum and some of the things that Tatum says. He says, I like the odds there. Um, some of the things that Tatum says uh, are so important. And um, and it's almost you can almost miss them because this seems like this sort of traveling down into the cave where Leo is trapped uh, seems to be like a, a, a transitional scene. But he says some very important things. He references the uh, guy Floyd Collins. Uh, as he describes, 1925, he, he in Kentucky, the guy was trapped. It became a huge news story, and uh, and people made their bones. Reporters made their bones reporting on it, and getting the exclusive scoop. And and it and this thing can be good for a journalist, even though it's very bad for Leo. Uh, Tatum makes it clear why he's what he's thinking and why he's uh, why he's so interested. Um, In fact, Floyd Collins was a real case that Wilder and his co-writers based this story on, and there was another case they based it on. It's two, two cases. It was Floyd Collins, and it was also um, a, the case of a three-year-old girl, one of those cases uh, that seem perennial, uh, a three-year-old girl being trapped down a well, and a media frenzy uh, takes place. Another sort of key detail here, I think, is that we hear that Leo... Uh, doesn't have any bones broken. So it's important that his situation be dire and, uh, and his health indeed will deteriorate. But um, it's important that he's not in a huge amount of pain or discomfort like a, a compound fracture of the femur or something would bring. Uh, he's just kind of trapped for now and his health is, is sort of stable right now in this story. And, and that's kind of key because for this story to be effective, we have to... I think we have to um, be okay with what Tatum's doing up to a point. And then when he begins to really, uh, um, the situation really gets exacerbated, it's then that we have to be alarmed by Tatum. So we have to, you know, he, he despite having ulterior motives, he he's treating Leo well here, brings him the cigars from his wife and the, and the coffee. And so it it's... I just mean it, it has to be a slow boil to where we, we sort of see that Tatum is sort of not a proper hero. He's already starting to kind of, not bullshit Leo, but, but um, give him a line here. And it's, it's, I think if they had a better actor to play Leo, we have this man, Rich Benedict. I don't think he's as effective um, you can see why they wouldn't cast a movie star to be the guy trapped in the cave, but um, <clears throat> I don't think I think he's most effective in this scene when he meets Tatum for the first time and he talks about his, his he talks about lots of things he talks about his marriage he, he talks about why he was down there he, he talks about this superstitious idea that the the spooks the Indian spooks are are punishing him or or taking revenge on him. Uh, and he's sort of creeped out. Uh, you can under, I mean, you can understand why he would be creeped out trapped in a cave. Um, and he, he says what reporters say there, uh, Tatum, he says, go on. Uh, but I don't think it, it, the, the most moving part of this scene is when Leo sings the, the song and he says that when he was in the war and they were in a very um, trying part of combat, uh, they began to sing that song, and, and it lifted their spirits, and yada yada. And he begins to sing the song. Tatum sings along with him. 
and then Tatum uh, continues to sing as he leaves, as he exits, and and his singing sort of fades on the on the sound mix. Uh, <clears throat> very cool, uh, very cool moment. But there are later scenes with Rich Benedict where um, he's playing a man trapped uh, in a cave for several days, and I just don't buy it. I just don't. You know, he he looks. He he should be more. I feel like he should be more delirious and more, you know, sort of a one-dimensional character, although they do give him, you, know, you can tell this is a wilder story, because they give him a little bit of backstory, you know, they give him something that shows that, um, I mean, it's basically a save the cat for him, I mean, he was doing something that is, uh, some people might feel is not admirable going into this Indian burial ground or Native American burial ground and taking things, uh, um, but, uh, at the same time, his, his love for his wife and his sort of experience as a veteran and just the fact that, uh, we're empathic. We feel anytime we see someone suffering. So it, it kind of gets us feeling badly for him. We, we can't, we certainly can't feel like, like he deserves this <laughs> no matter what he was doing. The relationship that we get in, uh, by way of dialogue, but the nature of his marriage to Lorraine, and she's tried to leave before. She's actually going to try to leave a couple of times while he's trapped in the cave because uh, be before she left and he came after her, and now he's sort of trapped, so he can't come after her. So um, <laughs> it's it's intuitive why she would leave, but at the same time, you're like, uh, you, you're thinking what Tatum says. Oh, you're really going to leave when he's at his lowest point? Yeah, see, that's that's pretty moving stuff there. Um, you hear Tatum still singing it, and as he's leaving, this man trapped deep in this cave. It's a very, very scary movie in some ways. This movie is... is um, I'll zoom out in a, in a minute and talk about some different aspects of, uh, of this uh, and some uh, background on it, but I really th think that this movie is cynical, and cynicism as a... Uh, you know, uh, as ca cynical characters, cynical stories. I, I just feel like cynicism gets a bad rap. Um, it, it has this negative connotation. <clears throat> cynicism is kind of going to often be like a variant of realism, you know, <laughs> being realistic or um, assessing uh, the world we live in soberly. Uh, um Tatum is cynical in some ways that are not admirable. Uh, he's self-interested and arrogant and for most of the entire movie is indifferent to the suffering of others. It's And he's able to rationalize them, of course. It's only at the very end when it's too late that he begins to really question and feel pangs of guilt. We have sort of cutaway shots of his reactions where he, he feels these pains, pangs of guilt. The the uh, we hear there um, that Floyd Collins uh, lasted 18 days and I don't need 18 days. I just need one week. And that line there is one of the sets into place. One of the things that I think for me doesn't work as well in the movie. Um, we actually have a couple of them going on here. Uh, the Herbie character, uh, 
played by Bob Arthur. Robert Arthur doesn't work as well for me. Um, doesn't quite land. First of all, the um, the Floyd Collins thing um, uh, had this idea of a, a ticking clock. Um, he says, I just need a week of this. And it's, it's sort of this attempt to put a ticking clock onto the story. But there's always this, um, even when they they tell us the different prognostications about how long this should all take, um, we we still have this sense of uncertainty as to how long things will take and the sense of uncertainty of just whether or not Leo will, will die. So, and there are different time frames. the movie, I guess it is kind of a ticking clock. He says a week right there and it ends up being around that in the, in the time span of the movie. But, um, it's sort of, I don't know. I, I don't think it quite, I think they give different time frames for different things in the movie and it and I can see why it can almost be confusing because they they uh, oh he'll he'll only last this long cuz now he has pneumonia or you know um but I don't think the story needs a ticking clock so much cuz the story is not about Leo it's about Tatum and about you know what the issue, the issues raised by by his actions. If the story were about Leo, a ticking clock, um, yeah, it has to do with focus. If the story were about Leo, a ticking clock would would be uh, more helpful, I think. But anyway, the other thing with the uh, the other sort of uh, fly in the ointment of this movie, or some, something that doesn't work as well for me, is the Herbie character, the the kid that. Uh, uh, Tatum uh, corrupts and has already started corrupting with his, uh, you know, mocking the fact that the kid went to journalism school and uh, trying to teach the kid to to um, be more proactive in these in these unethical ways. Um, first of all, I think any I think the kid is a is a type of character that we see, right? I mean, the uh, young sort of naive kid who works at the paper. Um, uh, you know the 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 kid who works at uh, at Spider Man's paper at Peter Parker's paper, uh, uh, the Jimmy Olsen character in in uh, in uh, Superman. Um, it's it's it, I don't think it's bad that it's the type. It's just uh, I think the Arthur the actor actually captures it very well. He actually reminds me. I I don't know if it's the same guy, but it might be the same actor given the time period but uh he reminds me of the kid uh the the guy who who played uh captain marvel's secret identity in uh in the captain marvel serials the kid who would say shazam and then he would turn into captain marvel uh he actually reminds me of that kid uh he probably played that kid at one point i bet that's a cool line i'm not i'm not drunk mr boot um there are different things that you can track, different story threads that you, or different threads that you kind of track through the story, right? Um, this idea of uh, Tatum being on the wagon, uh, and when he's on the wagon, he's kind of on the level, and the more he exacerbates the situation, and and um, and uh, the more he kind of goes bad, uh, the more he starts to drink again, and and he's drinking a lot in the sort of uh, uh, toward the end of the movie. I don't think this is too on the nose here. Um, I kind of like it, uh, this sort of idea that Lorraine is sort of an Eve character, the temptress. She 
looks at Tatum, looks at what's going on, and sees that Tatum's interests can, uh, you know, Tatum's self-interested uh, self uh, motivations can, can be aligned with hers. And she's kind of a parallel character to Tatum. Both feel that they don't belong in, in this place. Both are trying to leave at the first opportunity. Both are kind of cynical. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and I think that's cool. I think that, that makes the conflict between them all the more interesting when they, when they lock horns throughout the movie. Um, and, and in terms of, of being... Um, uh, cynical and ruthless i think tatum's got her got her beat <laughs> this is the first of a, of a couple times where she's going to have her suitcase and, and she tries to leave that's nice tumbleweed blowing there uh yeah this 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 i, I like this photography I mean, it's not this sort of outdoor stuff hollywood movies didn't always shoot on location i know that seems crazy to people um familiar with more contemporary movies but um you know movies from the 30s and, and uh, better part of the 40s were shot on st studio lots and and externals were often done on um uh, pieces of nature that was owned by the actual studios uh um actually going to new mexico or going to paris or something is is not uh, you know still in 51 is not is still novel Now we, and we, we, I'm going to zoom out in a bit, but, um, we see that Tatum is, is, um, now ensconced here, um, and is totally driving the action at this point. I don't mean in the meta sense of what's going on in this movie. I mean, the character Tatum and what's going on, the drama playing out with this, uh, with this man trapped in the cave. He's, he's at the same time, he's, he's sort of doing proper investigative reporting work uh, he's got the family photos and he's uh, talking to people here he's also calling the construction crew and <laughs> calling the sheriff and and getting involved in a very participant kind of way and it's uh, very funny um, how the movie captures that that fact that that sort of um, he's 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 reporting and participating in it. It's a very smart movie. Jan Sterling, to me, is great, be partially because she's she's a good actor, but I mean, partially because she um, is not pretty in the... She's very pretty, but she's not pretty in the way that um, someone like Jean Harlow or... Uh, Rita Hayworth was pretty, uh, uh, or Veronica Lake. Um, she's she's sort of got this sort of um, smushed in kind of facial features, and and she sort of looks like a what they used to call a broad. Uh, she sort of looks like a like a an sort of ur she has this urban kind of sensibility and this hard nosed. Uh, she's uh, they used to call it being a tomboy too. You know, she's a little bit of a broad and. I think she's, you know, with the blonde hair, we hear that the blonde hair isn't actually her hair. She once had it brown, and um, and we're also hearing here that Leo caught up with her <laughs> when she tried to leave. Um, yeah, she. I, I think she, it's the sort of ability to play a tough woman or a broad that um, 
Barbara Stanwyck has uh, had and the ability to um, be kind of sexy and adorable in that tough, hard-nosed kind of way. Um, uh, or just to just be sort of sexy and, and cute, but also not taking any guff from a man like uh, Tatum here. So it says she, she sort of combines uh, Stanwyck, Barbara Stanwyck and, and someone like Judy Holliday. Speaking of Judy Holliday, of course, she was in Born Yesterday, and I think Broderick Crawford, who was also in that movie, would have been a, a, a very good at the, the Leo role, I think. I think we really did need a, a better actor there. But like I say, the only movie star in this movie is, is Douglas, and I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of it. A nice little sequence here. Clearly a real location, right? Um, where she's going to sort of uh, change her mind, and it's it's just uh, photographed very nicely. Uh, the The... The overreaching and, and sort of unethical uh, things that journalists might do or media culture might do. I mean, this is this movie is uh, very much a critique of um, a certain kind of media approach or media culture or uh, ulterior motives on the part of the press. And uh, but but the press aren't the only people who are criticized. Um, these these characters, um, the actor who who plays uh, the the patriarch of this family is uh, Frank Cady, and I think the name of the family here is the Federber family. We'll hear later that he works for for uh, Pacific All Risk Insurance, <laughs> uh, which means that he works with Edward G. Robinson and and uh, and uh, Fred McMurray from Double Indemnity, right? But we d- we don't see the kids in the back seat here. That that's. Uh, Maybe Wilder realized we didn't actually need to see the kids for this. They can just pretend to talk to the kids. So you don't have to have the kids on set or you don't have to. <laughs> I don't see any kids back there anyway. But this sort of, um, he's sort of this wide-eyed um, uh, guy who's who's sort of this all-American family. They're kind of unattractive in a way. Uh, they're kind of um, bumbling and sort of stupid. And they're coming to this spectacle. They're coming to look at the spectacle. And the spectacle is this man suffering and his family suffering as he's trapped in this well. And they're coming to it like it's a carnival. And uh, I should mention that the original title of this movie was The Carnival. And I, I actually think that's a superior title. In a pig's eye. I love that statement. That, I love that old expression, in a pig's eye. Clark Gable says it in... Uh, in uh, Oh, probably in a bu- <laughs> probably in a bunch of movies, but he says it in It Happened One Night. Uh, I think he's on the phone with Claudette Colbert. He says, uh, in a pig's eye, he's all drunk. That's the first kind of uh, violent, well, violent might be overstating it. I mean, I... I he grabs her arm there and, and is sort of speaking roughly to her. It's certainly verbally violent. Uh, well, I mean, if, if somebody grabbed my girlfriend's arm like that, I would say they they were being violent with her. Um, and you see just how intense uh, Douglas is, but he has these 
these facial features that are just so endearing <laughs> that you can't hate him even when you're supposed to hate him. Uh, he's a remarkable, remarkable performer. Here comes the, the very nicely done thing. The bus comes, and just as she changes her mind, the bus pulls away, and and uh, we see her retiring back to the uh, back to the building there. Sort of very nicely staged here. Yeah, but what I was going to say is that about the family, they're, they're kind of this bumbling all-American family, unattractive in a way. They're here to look at the spectacle of somebody suffering. This movie doesn't just critique the, the people in media and media culture and the, the extremes that media can go to and, and the liabilities of uh, certain kinds of media approaches. Um, but this movie also critiques media consumers, I think. At least that, that's how I read it. I mean, I see those characters, and, and there's, a, there's a, a particular exchange coming up when uh, Bob Bumpus, the radio guy, is interviewing regular people. And um, we think it's going to be that trope of uh, the everyday person in the audience who calls out the, the people in the, who are in the movie, uh, call, calls them out, or, or the everyday person... Who, who calls out uh, what's going on in the story. And, and if, if they would just listen to this normal man, this salt-of-the-earth type, who actually knows what... It's this very egalitarian idea of um, the people know the truth, and if they would just listen to this guy who knows that they shouldn't be drilling from up top, they should be going in this way. Uh, we think it's going to be that. And then Wilder uh, inverts that. And... This we also get this woman who doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about, and it's sort of like, uh, it's a nuanced thing that's saying, well, you know, some people in the public are pretty smart and savvy, uh, uh, and some people, perhaps most people, are not. They're kind of stupid, and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So I'll point that out. Uh, I, it's not very clear when I describe it like that, but I'll 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 point it out when it happens in the movie. Pretty great. We had that piece of physical comedy there, uh, with the the Federer character and his family. And he sort of has this, uh, has the tent fall on him, and it's sort of a cheap piece, cheap uh, joke. Uh, first of all, I don't think we need a, a funny beat there. And um, if we do, uh, Wilder is usually has smarter jokes than that, I think, in his better movies. We hear that Leo's been being given Demerol there. Which is one of the strands that doesn't pay off, uh, <clears throat> but it's a minor one. One of the major ones is like um, uh, Herbie, the the kid. Uh, uh, here he is. He, he he's being corrupted by Tatum. That's the whole idea. He's sort of on board with Tatum now, despite his earlier reservations, and we can see that Tatum's corrupting him. But in the sort of last leg of the movie, in the last act. Um, you'd think that this kid who's been ta with Tatum in a way the whole way and, and who's been corrupted, you'd think he would play into the, into the events that, that, um, at the climax of the movie, you'd think that he would have some effect on the events that are going on, but he really doesn't. Uh, it, the movie just kind of, uh, drops him, um, and I'm surprised by that because it's an interesting dynamic when he's corrupting this kid and ultimately it's Tatum's own realization and the meeting with Mr. Boot that makes him reconsider uh, and, and ultimately 
uh, lead, you know, be redeemed, uh, even though uh, it's too late. Um, but I think with that Herbie character, it's they could do something. Could have done something much more interesting with, um, you know, he's corrupting this kid, and maybe he creates a Frankenstein, you know, creates a monster, and uh, the kid uh, is doing things that are way more. Um, that go past a line even Tatum would go maybe, you know, and, uh, and that way there could be some sort of reversal and, and, uh, the kid would be taking part in the events later in the movie, but the movie kind of just drops him along with, uh, something else that it tends to annoy me in movies. Uh, this movie, uh, that's clearly not a real rattlesnake in the box, <laughs> Uh, you can get away with that in black and white. This movie um, also does something that uh, sort of annoys me in movies. Um, uh, it has to do with sort of the way it introduces these ideas of uh, Native American um, s- religions and uh, spooks and this idea of cultures clashing, the Native American religion on the one hand versus the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian iconography and and religious ideas clashing with those, and, and these two cultures clashing. Um, uh, you think that's going to go somewhere. We, we sort of see those Native Americans standing ominously uh, when Tatum first arrives at the cave and, and talks to that cop. He's talking to the sheriff here, of course. Um, and we get the title of the movie there, Ace in the Hole. Again, I prefer The Carnival. I think that's a much better title. Um, so... Um, and of course, uh, Jan Sterling's character Lorraine is not not anywhere near as distraught as Leo, Leo's mother, rather. Yeah. So the the idea of the cultures clashing, the religious clashing, um, I think the movie and I think movies tend to do this. They sort of um, act like they're going to have something to say about uh, these sort of weighty topics of religious affiliation and cultures clashing uh those are very weighty um heavy topics and and the movie sort of picks them up fondles them a little bit puts them back down doesn't really do anything with them um not that they have to do anything with them but i think i just i don't like when movies sort of pick up these weighty topics like that introduce them as if they're going to have some comment to make about them or as if they're going to use them to some end in the, in the story or, and, um, they're just kind of introduced and nothing's really, they're just kind of part of the pastiche of this milieu. Uh, they're just kind of this background. Um, and I think that sometimes can be cheap. Um, you know, it's like, it's like introducing the Holocaust into a story that you're telling because the Holocaust is this weighty topic and people have all these emotional associations to that topic. And, and uh, do you have something to say about the Holocaust? Uh, do you have some reason for introducing it other than it's just a weighty, or is it just part of the background? So, um, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's kind of a flaw in the movie. Once again, I think they could have got a better actor to play the, the local contractor who's inept at his job and is now going to be manipulated by Tatum and the, and the sheriff. You notice the, the movie does slow down after its first uh, 20 minutes, 
and um, I think the first 20 minutes of the movie are the best um, in in terms of the writing, not the, the direction or anything. I think there are actually some beautiful um, pieces of film directing coming up, some beautiful shots, too. Um, uh, the rest of the movie is fascinating. I'm just saying that the in terms of the way this is written, it doesn't get much, much better than the first 20 minutes. And then... There's a scene coming up in the tent when when Tatum uh, uh, confronts these his fellow journalists. That is uh, uh, arguably the best scene in the movie. Of course, the um, I'm going to speak about Billy Wilder in a moment here. Of course, the sheriff, uh, the proposition that Tatum has given the sheriff is, uh, look, this is a mutually beneficial situation. The kid in there, you know, the doctor already told Tatum, the kid, uh, Leo, had a burst appendix and he and he sort of soldiered through it. So he's a tough cookie. Um, and uh, the sheriff needs to be elected. And Tatum has the ability as a journalist to uh, get uh, remarkably good press for the sheriff. And so the sheriff is going to be in cahoots with Tatum. And so Tatum is now pulling the strings. He's not just cross the line into participating and driving the action of this whole uh, thing that's going on uh, with Leo in the cave. He is, he is also uh, uh, the man behind the curtain. He is, he is manipulating the local officials, and uh, it's a very key plot point that we got there in the conversation. Uh, Tatum says, uh, look, I want you to drill from the top of the mountain <laughs> or the cliff all the way down so that you can extract them that way. And the guy says, well, that's going to take a lot of days. It's not necessary. We can just brace the entrance and get them out that way, and that'll only take a couple days. Uh, but Tatum wants it done the long way because he needs at least a week of coverage to make a name for himself here. And, of course, he's used his influence with the sheriff to to block out the other journalists uh, to 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 make sure that he has the exclusive story and that everybody else is just kind of covering his coverage. Um, I can tell you, not far fetched at all. Uh, it's exaggerated in the way it comes off in the movie, but in terms, I mean, stuff like that uh, has always happened, and it was sort of most prevalent in what's thought of as like the golden age of newspapers, the Pulitzer era, the William Randolph Hearst era, you know, uh, there were 20 newspapers a day in New York City, you know, uh, uh, that was the, the sort of most corrupt time. Citizen Kane is a sister movie to this, uh, and, and I, I'm reminded of that part where Charles Foster Kane says, uh, the guy, his reporter, writes to him and says, uh, there's no war going on here. Uh, all I can write are prose, poem, prose poems about the landscape. And uh, Kane says, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. Um, it goes on in small ways, uh, I think, even today. Um, uh, wag the dog kind of uh, coverage, driving coverage. The media's favorite topic is the media these days. Uh, they love reporting on themselves. We heard a, one of the great Billy Wilder lines there. She's so good here, Jan Sterling. She's such a bad girl. Um, but again, the fact that she's not heavenly in her good looks, the fact that she's not, you know, um, she doesn't look sweet looking. 
Uh, she looks like a broad. Uh, that's a that's a pretty shocking moment there too. When he uh, and and obviously you can tell that uh, Douglas smacks the shit out of her in reality. Uh, in the scene, you know, he, Douglas really hit her there. One thing I like here is that um, you know portrayals of violence against women in movies can come off in all different kinds of ways. And one thing I like about the performance here and the way this happens is that after Tatum hits her, he just turns away and she doesn't immediately cry or immediately... I think it's very realistic is all I'm saying. Not that I've ever smacked the shit out of a woman like that. But (laughs) I think it's realistic in the sense that if you watch Sterling's performance there, her face... Um, uh, she's trying to kind of figure out how she feels about what just happened. She's shocked. She's surprised. She doesn't know if she should yell at him, hit him back, try to hurt him, scream, cry. And, but she's just sort of in shock and she's holding her face and she's just kind of, and Tatum doesn't look at her and she just kind of backs away and quietly leaves and, and, I don't know. I just like I like her performance there more than anything. I guess. What a shot here, huh? Um, this was a real set. I mean, they. I mean, today you would uh, you would green screen. You would uh, you would composite. Uh, you know, digital. Uh, uh, you know, digital crowds and. <laughs> uh, but they really went to New Mexico and did this. Uh, it's remarkable. And some really beautiful aerial shots, too. Mr. Federber, he says. I think I said Federber. Uh, same thing. Uh, tomato, tomato. Bob Bumpus says, uh, is the man who plays the radio announcer, and the radio announcer's name is Bob Bumpus in the movie. So leads me to suspect that maybe Bob Bumpus was a, 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 a well-known radio guy in real life who was just stuck in the movie and then people would go like hey that's bob bumpus like you know the way people go like hey that's uh alan funt or something (laughs) obviously the kids wearing the indian regalia or headdress uh, uh somewhat disturbing to our contemporary eyes i think Now the the fact that, that that the average person is not salt of is salt of the earth, they are salt of the earth and likable in a way. But he's but they're they're kind of stupid, right? These media consumers, they're kind of stupid and kind of self serving. He's in the insurance game. He doesn't seem like someone who works with uh, someone so savvy and cool as Walter Neff. But we hear he works at the Pacific All Risk Insurance Company, so he works with Barton Keys, Walter Neff. <laughs> Maybe he worked on the Phyllis Dietrichson case somehow. I bet he's just in the mail room, that guy. Oh, no, no, no. He's giving out his card, right? He says, I, I sell insurance. But... <laughs> this is a delightful reference um, there. And, and all these extras, these exteriors, once again, um, I, I like the look of it. Clearly, we're in bright sunlight, but you've you're getting all the textures on Douglas's face. You're getting, uh, you're getting Gene Sterling's blouse there, uh, the design on it. Uh, it's just just the right amount of light, but it's still 
you can see in the background there when people walk by with white shirts. I mean, it's it's very much you can tell not by looking at the actors in the foreground here, but in the background when people walk by with white shirts, you can really tell how bright it is out. They're diffusing some of some of the light above the actors, I'm sure. So I've, I've been saying I'm going to zoom out and I keep uh, keep bab babbling here. Um, let's talk uh, talk some Billy Wilder. Um, I'm sure I'm going to do this is my second Billy Wilder movie. I'm sure I'm going to do more Billy Wilder movies because there are so many I love. Um, so I won't say too much about him except to say that uh, he was a real character and a real talent. Uh, I, I think one of the greats, once again, I, he, he wasn't, um, he didn't move the camera in these stylistic ways, the way Hitchcock did. He didn't, you know, he, he wasn't a show offy director. He was a, he was a storyteller and, and yet his movies have this, this visual, uh, energy to them and, and creativity to them that is always serving the story. So, um, I do couple him with someone like definitely Sidney Lumet. Um, anyway, this is um, sometimes marked as uh, Wilder's first commercial flop, first big failure. And that's an important thing. Uh, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I heard that... Um, this movie lost money, and so on. On his next picture, Paramount actually docked his pay for the some of the losses that this movie had. Um, I don't. I mean, I, that sounds like something that might happen. Uh, I, I haven't been able to verify it, but uh, I have a book about Billy Wilder. It doesn't say anything about it in there. But anyway, um, it sounds like something that, <laughs> that they would do. Uh, my guess as a as a law school dropout would probably be that uh, it wasn't a punitive thing that they just did. It was a contractual thing that, you know, if, if the movie doesn't make this much money, we have these options. If the movie makes this much money, you have, or more than this amount of money, you have these options. So, uh, yeah, um, Wilder has, uh, uh, I, I, th I would, again, put this near the top of his uh, ranked filmography. Um, in the early, f well, I mean, in the, I think 44, he does double indemnity, um, or 43, 42, uh, I won't get the, forget the years, but early forties, he does double indemnity, the lost weekend, uh, the lost weekend, of course, won best picture, double indemnity, I think got a nomination. Um, the lost weekend, of course, with Ray Milland, the first seen as one of the first serious treatments of alcoholism, um, as a sort of disease, um, with sort of a nuanced portrayal of the alcoholic. And uh, uh, 1950 does Sunset Boulevard the year before this. Then Ace and the Hole flops, although it got some critical love. Um, he won Best Director in, at, at Venice for it. So, you know, people, people were who were getting it. I think uh, that's a great moment when he flashes the badge, and we know that Tatum is fully on the dark side now. Um, By the way, this this is 
uh, what I was saying before. I'll I'll continue uh, talking about Wilder's movies, but um, this is what I love. This scene, uh, I think it might be the best in the picture, and this is why you need a movie star to play Tatum. And and what Douglas here is so does here is so delicious. Uh, <laughs> when he flashes that badge, you you really do know he's gone all the way to the dark side. He um comes into this room and just verbally um dick smacks these guys and he's relishing it he's loving every minute of it he's he's absolutely this is what he has been hoping for he all of this stuff he i mean i'm saying that douglas really conveys the fact that all of this shit that's been going on the spectacle all is really so that he could have a moment like this <laughs> where he could just uh tell them who their daddy is um the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, I read uh, uh, something he wrote once, or I think I think it might be in a just an online article about him, where he says um, the the greatest feeling in the world is the feeling of being vindicated. The greatest feeling in the world is not sex or food or alcohol. The greatest feeling is the feeling of um, people saying that you were wrong and and having to having them having to admit that you're right or them having to tell you that you uh, were acting appropriately when you when they said you weren't or something. I think he's right about that. I think I think Douglas again really conveys that. It's the uh, the Howard Hawks thing too of um um. A good movie has three good scenes and no bad ones. Well, this movie has, I think, four or five really great scenes. Um, and I don't think any bad ones. Some bad performances. Again, the composition here, the staging, is is very, very precise, right? That woman's face over this man's shoulder. The way Douglas is uh, walks into the background, comes back, but is sort of in between the reporter and... and this, these two people, um, very, very precisely done. You see this satisfied face that uh, uh, he makes briefly there because this is the scene I was describing before. Now that man is a contractor or some sort of uh, guy. He says, "Now look, I'm." Uh, what he's saying here, of course, is, "I'm no, uh, you know, uh, I'm no Harvard professor, but I know this stuff, and I know that." Uh, uh, I don't know why they're drilling that way when it'll take a lot shorter time to do it the way I'm saying. And I, I don't know much, but I know that. And uh, clearly he's a man who knows what he's talking about. Um, he's not, doesn't seem to be a, uh, a great actor, but the, the character clearly knows what he's talking about, right? Uh, and, and the way, the way uh, Tatum shuts him down is interesting too. I'll say something about that. But, but he clearly knows what he's talking about and he should be listened to. So, so somebody in the public is hip to what's going on and so you think the trope is oh if they would just listen to the people the people have immense wisdom you know again this egalitarian idea but then what happens this I, I love billy wilder for this then what happens this this fucking idiot behind him this woman says uh uh starts with this anecdote that is completely unrelated and uh is not instructive in any way it's just kind of she just wants to be on mic you know, and uh, I was trapped in an elevator once and da 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 da. And it's just like, oh, no, 
actually the public is a mixture of people who are sensible and people who are morons. <laughs> just like just like any large group of people, right? Um, but I just love that shit. And the way Tatum shuts him down is... So at once the scene critiques media consumers and journalists because you notice the way Tatum shuts him down is very unfair. It sort of has a built-in fallacy, right? He's saying... Uh, uh, the guy saying, hey, look, the way to drill is this way, not the way these guys are doing. Uh, uh, it would be faster, and I don't see why they don't do it this way. And and he tells about a time they they had to drill that, or, or they, they had to go in uh, that the way he's indicating to get a, a man who was trapped out. And Tatum asks, uh, uh, did you get that man out? And then uh, the guy says, no, uh, he, he unfortunately didn't make it. And... Uh, Tatum has that little, you know, grin and says, all right, let's get out of here. Um, he shut the guy down by asking, you know, were you successful? Now, whether or not they were successful in their rescue attempt uh, and the, the mechanism that they used for the rescue attempt, whether or not they were successful has really no bearing on whether or not, obviously, the, the method they were using has merit uh, or is the best method, um, you know. Um, someone might, uh, might have, a an unsuccessful, uh, cancer surgery, but just because the surgery was unsuccessful doesn't mean that the surgeon, uh, should have used, uh, a candy cane instead of a scalpel, <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't invalidate the, the actual procedure they were doing. Um, but Tatum knows that <laughs> Tatum knows that. And he does what? what some uh, some jerk-off journalists will do to people sometimes uh, for various reasons, bias or just their assholes, uh, is ask an unfair gotcha question like that. Um, uh, you know, uh, like asking someone whether they read magazines and newspapers. <laughs> what magazines and newspapers do you read, Mrs. Palin? Well, you know, <laughs> she reads cereal boxes, but that's not a gotcha question. The point is a gotcha question is... Uh, a question that is intended to make the person look look uh, look like a fool. This might be a little overexposed here. Uh, maybe it's just the contrast on my TV here, but uh, this shots of Jan Sterling's hair. You see that, and uh, the sunlight kind of hitting her. I don't know about overexposed, just a little bright. Um, you notice in the background once again. Uh, those people passing by with bright shirts and even the ground in the far background there, you, you can see just how bright it is. Gallup, New Mexico sounds as hot as it must be. Anyway, back to Billy Wilder. Um, I didn't have much to say about him because, like I say, I'm going to probably do more Wilder movies. And uh, where did I leave off? So uh, he does uh, this movie after he does Sunset Boulevard. I, I think Sunset Boulevard was uh, got some nominations and and um, uh, this movie didn't really um, uh, might have got one I think this movie flops uh, first commercial flop and uh, supposedly they, they docked his pay <laughs> uh, he does in the 1950s he uh, so he's already won uh, an Oscar for uh, the Lost Weekend and had several nominations 
through the 1940s. 1950s, he does uh, Sunset Boulevard, this film. Uh, also in the 50s, he does The Seven-Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe. He does uh, Some Like It Hot, which is regarded as one of the great comedies. Uh, and I think I think justifiably, um, it, it's in addition to that, it's the movie where uh, Marilyn Monroe sings, I want to be loved by you. By uh, and, you know, she was high as a kite when she sang it. And I think that's why it works in the movie. <laughs> but um, that's a little on the nose, right? The crucifix behind Mr. Boot. We're going to have the Virgin Mother, Virgin Madonna or whatever behind them, too. A little bit on the nose, but. But then again, not because these things have been in the room the whole time. So, um, he wins the Oscar for Best Picture again in 1960 with The Apartment, uh, which might be my favorite Wilder movie. Uh, um, I love that fucking movie. Uh, Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, my man Fred McMurray. Uh, just a beautiful movie. Just uh, the drama that really... Uh, pulls at your heartstrings in all the right ways and comedy that really lands, you know, uh, just a beautifully wrought movie in 1960. Late in Wilder's career, his films, uh, didn't really, uh, he, he, uh, he made some films, his later films that are just not good, not as good. Uh, and the last years of his life, he didn't, he just kind of retired. But um, say from Double Indemnity to The Apartment, uh, he was fantastic. Um, in the 60s, late 60s, he made a couple more movies with Jack Lemmon. He made a movie with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau that isn't, isn't very good, uh, isn't, isn't very interesting. And so he, you know, from, from Double Indemnity to The Apartment, I think uh, uh, he was just uh, one of the best working Now, here's uh, where something, uh, a thread that the story does tie up nicely, I think, is Mr. Boot and what he symbolizes. Uh, we had the last scene, the, earlier in the movie, the scenes with Mr. Boot were all about humor, right? Uh, <clears throat> Tatum says he lost a job for, uh, for going, uh, uh, going off with the editor's wife, messing with the editor's wife, and, and, Mr. Boot says, well, you know, Mrs. Boot is a grandmother twice, and and, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure she'd be flattered. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great line in a 1951 movie. Just fantastic, you know. Um, but here, Mr. Boot's all business and all serious. And he, of course, the background indicates it, too. He represents a journalistic ethics. He might be a small-time editor, he might not be bound for the big papers on the East Coast, but he's fine with that. He just wants to he just wants to do a good job. And he's not he's got his principles. And you see the the sort of way that he looks at Herbie and Herbie, it's a nice performance by Herbie, uh, the the guy playing Herbie here, uh, Bob Arthur is a, just kind of a little bit ashamed of the way Mr. Boots looking at him because once again, we've had it set up for us that Mr. Boot's a good man. He's not hes not um, someone who goes around moralizing at people, right? We even have the detail that he's a lawyer. He says, uh, well, I don't mind being sued for libel, Mr. Tatum, because I'm a lawyer. 
um, which is bupkis. I, I think, um, I don't care if you're a lawyer or nobody wants to be sued for libel. Nobody's okay with being sued for libel or being sued for anything. Being sued is not fun. Um, so the fact that he's a lawyer would make him all the more sensitive to a suit, uh, whether it's libel or whatever. I like that Tatum, Tatum doesn't just, that this isn't Tatum's turning point where he, he gets shamed into having a change of conscience by Mr. Boot. I like that he shouts out Mr. Boot and, and stands his ground because it really, it's really, again, Tatum really going to the dark side. Um, and, and of course the drinking while he was talking to, to Mr. Boot, uh, uh, he's way on the wagon, uh, way off the wagon here, right? So um, I, I, I do wish they could have given Mr. Boot a better line. Not, not necessarily like a drop-the-mic moment, but, but just a line better than uh, the one he had just before he left the room. Uh, it's kind of, kind of just a boring line. Wilder, usually better than that. Okay, now we go from one guy who was in double indemnity to another, right? <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, as I sip my coffee, um, this man who plays Nagel, the New York editor, who is now haggling with Tatum, uh, and you see Tatum uh, is in the driver's seat here. <laughs> uh, this man is named Richard Gaines. And if he looks familiar to you, he would have looked familiar to Billy Wilder, too, because he was in Double Indemnity. He played the head, uh, the CEO, the president of the Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. Uh, And in that one extraordinary scene, one wonderful scene in the picture, he gets dressed down uh, completely... uh, uh, owned by not only Edward G. Robinson, but Barbara Stanwyck as well. You tell me, Barbara Stanwyck goes, you tell me that you owed me money, now you tell me that you don't. Well, I don't like you, sir. I mean, she just she just goes off on him, just um, gives him a suntan, you know. And Edward G. Robinson does too. Uh, and, he, and, and there he has a better line uh, before he leaves the room. He says, uh, uh, next time I'll wear a tuxedo because the guy gave, gave him a hard time when he walked in without a jacket. So that actor, Richard Gaines, was that guy in Double Indemnity. And it's interesting that in both movies, Wilder casts him as uh, sort of a an asinine guy behind a desk. An asinine guy who's important, who sits behind a big desk. He even says in Double Indemnity, now just because a man sits behind a big desk, people think, and then he's interrupted. But uh, <laughs> it's it's a great little uh, detail. And when I did go to that revival screening of, of this movie, uh, there was a little, again, a murmur and laughter of recognition. I sensed that people knew that this is the guy from Double Indemnity. Oh, how cool. Uh, I love shit like I love theaters. You know, I just love shit like that. A smart audience. But... Um, He's way over the top playing that New York editor. He's kind of a J.J. Jameson type who's always yelling, right? And uh, he's yelling at Tatum over the phone, and Tatum's just loving it. It's like when he was in the tent, you know? 
They're just just a, a fantastic little detail of putting that putting that man in the movie. Um, he just has such a memorable face. I feel like Wilder was very good at casting, um, especially in supporting roles. How about these crane shots? Um, we're going to have a, one of the Ferris wheel coming up uh, that then moves into a shot of the mountain. But uh, the sheriff, by the way, is, um, is being played by Ray Teal who is a familiar face of movies of this vintage. Now, this idea of put a public face, of the, the statements he makes in public versus what he's really up to is uh, one of the more, uh, you know, we, we all read, in 51, we were already well aware that people were doing that. It's one of the more obvious criticisms the movie makes. But there's that shot. How about these shots of these... Uh, as as Papa Minosa passes out these sandwiches and sodas, we're going to have a, a shot that allows us to see the whole production here. Here's another story that I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but um, boy, look at that with the train. And we see th that this is this is a man, remember, who's trapped in a cave and might die. And of course... Um, it's a full Woodstock atmosphere. <laughs> the Leo Minosum special. Terrible, right? Uh, people are partying. Um, but anyway, uh, this uh, uh, song uh, that you're hearing is called We're Coming Leo. It was written for the movie by... The songwriters' names were Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. And it's a pretty song. I kind of like it. While you are in the devil's prison. That's nice. Um, it reminds me of, uh, <clears throat> if you watch the old, uh, not Lawrence Welk, but those really old television shows where country, like the Johnny Cash show where he'd have old-time country singers on, uh, uh, not just the Carter sisters, but, uh, well, they weren't uh, June Carter, but, but also people like Conway Twitty. I'm not a, I'm not a country music aficionado by no means, but, uh, that song we're coming Leo that they wrote for the movie seems like, uh, stuff that, uh, Hank Williams senior or Conway Twitty would, uh, would sing. This is a cool aspect that, um, the movie could have played up even more, right? Uh, the fact that after their their kind of uh, drama that's gone on, the conflict between Lorraine and Tatum, Lorraine has kind of, uh, in the same way she's cheated on her husband and and uh, been disloyal to her husband, she's she's kind of being disloyal to Tatum by by uh, talking to these other reporters. I, I like that aspect. I, I don't know why they didn't play that up more. Well, I mean, they get they get a lot of mileage out of it right here. He sees her, and it and it leads to this, to this confrontation. Now, my friend Steph, when we watched this movie, uh, uh, we sort of uh, that revival screening I was referring to went on recently, so we went kind of a. Uh, with our significant others to a to kind of a double date and 
we thoroughly debated what's going to happen here, um, uh, whether or not my friend Steph was like, well, how do you know it's a kiss at the end of this scene? I'm like, it's clearly a kiss. Otherwise, he's just grabbing her hair. It doesn't, you know. You see? She said, well, her, maybe it's just, uh, I forgot what she said. It was, it, 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 her argument was better than I'm making it sound. But um, she had a whole thing with it. But, but it's clearly a, a kiss. We're in full carnival mode here. And uh, uh, this, I don't think, is apocryphal. I think it's true that Paramount, after they wrapped on this location, they had all the carnival workers and equipment there. So they charged people admission to the carnival. They actually had a proper carnival. Uh, all the shit was there. The personnel were there. <laughs> yeah, this is the performance from... Uh, Benedict, uh, Richard Benedict, that doesn't work for me. Um, I just think that, uh, you know, this is idiosyncratic on my part, maybe. I just think that uh, it would look different. Uh, he would be, he would be more deranged um, and hallucinatory than, than exhausted. But we hear that he has pneumonia. And so we get a, another ticking clock here. Uh, the doctor will tell him that he, if he doesn't go until the morning, if he doesn't get out of here until the morning, he's he's probably going to die. I like the doctor's answer when Leo says, are you going to die? He says, uh, well, we're all going to die. Mr. Tatum will, I will, which is a nice, also a nice foreshadowing, obviously. Leo asks for a priest, uh... And Tatum says, you don't need a priest. We've got a doctor here. Um, again, the whole, I mean, I just, the whole religious thing, uh, he'll actually bring him a priest who will give the last rites. I, I believe give the last rites. But um, it's, it's, I feel like, uh, I, I do feel like the movie is, not really, I think the movies thinks that it's, you know, using these categories of religious belief. Uh, if the movie's saying something about it or using it in some way that's more profound than what I'm picking up on, I, I apologize. I just, I'm not seeing it. Because uh, it's so deliberate at various times in the movie. The, the iconography on the walls... Uh, the fact that there's a whole sequence coming up where, where Douglas has to bring uh, the priest. Um, you see what I mean by the movie does slow down when we get into the cave, and Douglas Douglas's vituperative uh, sort of yelling at Leo doesn't really do much. He's not really... It's, it's, I mean, it's a hard role to play for this, this actor, Benedict, but... Um, I, st I still, uh, maybe I just don't like his approach. Now, um, this turns out to be a, a, a real turning point, I think, for Tatum. Not the visit from Mr. Boot, because he goes from that and returns here and, and, uh, to meet the sheriff, to talk, talk to the sheriff. And it's, and it's really a badass, uh, scene for Kirk Douglas. And this would be a good time for me to start, uh, sort of my spiel on Kirk Douglas and movie stars. 
Um, now this Kirk Douglas is such a badass that this scene he's actually literally going to be topless. Um, he's going to be bare chested here, and uh, it's just, <laughs> it's just he's at this point in the movie he's so he's so owning this shit he's so badass that to wear a shirt would actually be an insult to his own badassness. Um, he's done other scenes in the in the picture in his in this room in his sort of bedroom uh and he didn't have his shirt off i mean it's understandable that he's taking shirt off he's sort of washing up changing shirts but um there's no more reason here than before for him to take his shirt off (laughs) so uh i just he he has that look that Dick Powell or some of the other actors of days of yore, you know, had uh, with their shirts off. You know, it, it just, you know, even that's unfair to me because times have changed. Um, today, if you want to be a leading man in movies, you have to generally be in a certain kind of shape i mean i mean i don't think kirk douglas or or um clark gable even knew what abs were you know what are abs um but this is this is the way men looked before everybody ran to the gym and everybody uh uh you know before working out with weights became a a thing back then the people who worked out with weights were weight lifters and that was like a niche sport. <laughs> I don't know why a, a, a sheriff would, would push someone in, a, in the sternum like that, but it's kind of a cool little punch out that he does. So he punches the guy out. He's got his shirt off. He just can't be any more badass. <laughs> but yeah, I do, th- I do think that it, it is crazy how... Um, with our contemporary eyes, we look at, at some of these old movies and the, the build that the heartthrobs had. I mean, there were people who were, who were well-built. I mean, uh, uh, Brando obviously was, um, a, a big lug with muscles, but, um, this is the way men looked before, like working out and high protein diets became a thing, you know, uh, um, this is the way, you know, and this was, this is a muscular sort of husky build for a man, I think, that Kirk Douglas had. So, uh, you see it a little more in Spartacus, but, um, different times. So, uh, Kirk Douglas, I think this is one of his better performances. Uh, what a, what a mitzvah it is that he is, that he is still with us, by the way. Um, He's not in ideal health, but he's still lucid. And um, I think uh, I've mentioned this on other commentaries with other people. I, I fear that he's going to be one of those people like Johnny Cash, who um, the people are going to wait until he's gone to say how awesome he is. Like they, Like, it's this obituary thing where... 
Um, we wait until someone actually dies before we say, oh, by the way, you were fucking awesome. You, you fucking owned it for 50 fucking years. How cool are you? You are awesome. Someone should build a monument. You know, we did that to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash got a lot of love when he was still alive, but it was very late in his life when he covered uh, the Nine Inch Nails songs and stuff. It was very late in his life. And uh, I think it mostly came after he died. Um, I think that'll probably happen to Kirk Douglas. I mean, you look at we look at his old movies. I mean, he was tearing it up. Um, we didn't do it as much to Paul Newman. He he won an Oscar later in his career and uh, late in his life starred in some good movies and got good notices for it. Um, but yeah, this is this is something that I think is going to happen to Douglas. Uh, it, well, actually, there's a pattern now of people sort of. Um, for for sort of nostalgia reasons or whatever people are brought back into the public's consciousness so you have someone like betty white who in the last several years after that super bowl commercial she became uh uh this this sort of viral sensation and people started appreciating betty white again uh betty white had only been around for 50 years but um so every once in a while you get an actor like that that gets appreciated and there's a ice cream truck that's uh, you know, is obviously pulling a, a John Cusack or a, and say anything outside my window. Um, I hope that's not coming through too much. Uh, I don't think it will. Oh my gosh. Fuck it. Um, I do, I do think that they'll probably do that to Kirk Douglas. Um, who else got a lot of love late in their life? Angela Lansbury, although she wasn't as big a star. She was a known actor, though, you know, a Manchurian candidate, and she did a lot of movies early on. Um, she was kind of a babe. Um, yeah, I, I I, hope that doesn't happen to Kirk Douglas. I think the fact that his he has the obvious connection to Michael Douglas is might save him, might have already saved him a little bit of that, but... Um, I mean, there was just nobody like him. Um, like, like I say, I, I can count on one hand the people who were stars at this time who could have done this role of Chuck Tatum and and had us buying it. Um, it's just an extraordinary performance. There's a couple sort of um, movies that he was actually that I would say he was actually bad in, but other than that, he was always stellar. Um, Okay, that truck went by. I'm sorry about that. I don't know why ice cream trucks feel the need to park on my block because there are no kids on this block. It's a pretty, uh, it's a, I mean, I, I think I'm the youngest person who lives in a house on this block. Uh, anyway, you really see in Kirk Douglas's old roles just how much he looks like Michael Douglas. <laughs> it's a natural thing, obviously. It's an expected thing, obviously, for a son to resemble a father. Uh, but the the resemblance in what kind of actor they are, and the the sort of approach to character and. And the, the mannerisms on screen is very, just this, I mean, uh, the posture uh, he happens to have right here, uh, Douglas, uh, 
sort of looking down his nose at <clears throat> at Jan Sterling, uh, uh, this sort of talking through his teeth uh, like that, um, this sort of uh, the deeply set eyes kind of. Uh, it could be Michael Douglas. He looks just like Michael Douglas. I think Michael Douglas had, uh, and it probably has to do with the era in which they worked, kind of a, a more mellow uh, way of uh, portraying characters. Um, I don't think he has the range his dad had, uh, although he's showing a lot of range in his later years, Michael Douglas. Um, now, when Tatum, uh, by the way, was choking Lorraine with that fur, with that, uh, what does she call it, a rat, a uh, bunch of rats or something. Uh, she's not impressed with the gift that Leo got her before he went in the cave. Um, okay, goodbye, ice cream truck, fucker. Anyway, um, <laughs> Tatum choking her out with that, with that thing, that fur, is actually one of the lobby cards, one of the posters for this movie. They chose that image, and it's like, not only is that sort of an alarming image, uh, and, and granted, this is a dark movie, uh, but it seems to me not only is that an alarming image, it is unbelievably minor in the sort of grand scheme of the movie. Um, I know that at the time there was an effort, a lot of effort to make movie posters have a man and a woman embracing or a man and a woman doing something or, um, uh, or, or more than one person on the lobby card or the poster. But, uh, it just, there's such better images from this movie, including some of those aerial images. Now this gag here is sort of um, I think I saw the same gag in a Sam Peckinpah movie once. Um, this idea that you leave your car there for a second, you run inside, and all the local kids come and start horsing around with your car, pretending to drive it. <laughs> and they, they don't mean any harm, and they don't steal anything. They, they just come up and, and fuck around, and then they leave as soon as you come back, and it kind of goes by without comment. Um, very cute, I think. The, the um, parish or church from which Leah, uh, uh, sorry, from which uh, Chuck Tatum uh, gets this priest is, looks like the, well, I guess they all look like that. <laughs> all the sort of adobe uh, churches might look the same, but uh, looks like the same church that Tuco's brother worked at in uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Eli Wallach in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the, the his character, uh, had a brother, the brother was a priest, and it was the, the trope of sort of uh, one good son and one bad, and uh, and he worked at a similar place. So again, this is um, probably done at Paramount, these interiors, and, uh, and but for the dust that falls at, you know, uh, in those clumps, I think that it ain't bad, you know, like this kind of stuff. Like that's clearly just a bunch of rocks being dumped out of a bucket, right? But um, but the actual facade that's behind them or, or walls of the cave are, are actually pretty damn good. I'm buying it.
So um, these this scene here um, kind of is the same idea as the doctor scene. Uh, this man doesn't need a doctor, he needs a priest, you know. Uh, same idea, and I, I, I like these little touches um, that are very, very visual. Of course, Leo being a, uh, uh, having a fundamentally good heart, which is something that Tatum doesn't have until it's too late. Um, uh, Leo, is his thoughts are on his wife and on the people he loves, but... Um, I like the little touches we get from this priest. He's using this stick to, uh, I, I believe, put holy water on uh, Leo or to um, administer the last rites. So in the Catholic uh, tradition, there are uh, the, the seven sacraments, right? And one of them is the one I'm sure nobody wants to get, which is uh, last rites, Uh before one dies, uh, you see it in movies sometimes. Uh, the Exorcist has actually has a last rites scene when uh, Jason Miller dies at the end, falls down those stairs. Uh, spoiler: um, his friend, the other priest, is there and gets there just in time to uh, take a confession uh, that he basically doesn't get but sort of i think that's all last rites are is um uh sort of giving a mini mass to the person who's dying uh by a by a celebrant by a priest um pretty sure that's all last rites are the other sacraments are what uh let's see here marriage eucharist uh confirmation baptism last rites uh and a couple more <laughs> Well, I got the one that's operative in the movie, right? Last Rites. I think that's the one that's operative in the movie. There's a fascinating thing that I haven't brought up as we watch um, uh, Tatum, who has finally grown something like a conscience, uh, make this dramatic announcement, and we really get to see the set here. Or it's, it's not a set, but the, the, the production here. Um, I love these moments in movies where uh, somebody just gets up and grabs a mic or a bullhorn and just goes, everybody stop, everybody stop. Uh, in real life, like it would take 20 minutes to get all these people to shut the fuck up and still some of them would be on their iPhone. Like, um, though it is now officially, <laughs> now officially too late Tatum has has grown a conscience. Um, I mean, it's a very dark story. <laughs> There's a a couple of fascinating sort of details of the production, and uh, the sort of post uh, post post the release of of the movie after it bombed. Um, the first is some. Um, when the movie was uh, uh, being uh, uh, going through the the process of the censors, or I think when the script was, uh, uh, no, no, I think it was the movie. Um, 
the Breen office had a problem with the sheriff. They didn't like the fact that this sheriff uh, is so easily corrupted and in, in an original cut of the movie or in a cut of the movie, the sheriff who was so easily corrupted basically doesn't get his just desserts. Doesn't get uh, any kind of fallout from it. Uh, either the movie dropped him or he just kind of went on his merry way. And the Breen office, of all the things in this movie, the violence against women, the, the you know, it's talk about how times have changed. The, uh, the portrayal of, um, or the, the um, attitudes that are demonstrated toward uh, um, Native Americans. Uh, the Breen office had a problem with that. Not somebody being choked out, a woman being choked out with a fur. They had a problem with, oh, this sheriff doesn't get what he deserves. So we see in the movie that uh, he kind of, the final movie that we have here, that he, he kind of does. Now we saw um, Mr. Federber's, uh, the insurance man from Pacific All Risk. We saw his wife there weeping, uh, and he consoled his wife as he takes down the tent, the tent that he did that, uh, that almost took him out before. Um, and I think that is a weird moment, actually, that uh, uh, because we're so focused on Tatum now that um, and the crowd is leaving. So I don't know. It seems like a, a funny beat, um, but it's important, I guess, because just as Tatum realizes that this was a real person with a real life that he was jeopardizing and harming. He was actively harming Leo. He was keeping him trapped in a cave longer than was absolutely necessary. And he didn't have the slightest concern. You know, he rationalized it. He said, well, he'll be okay. Look at all the money his place makes uh, from this. So he'll have lots of money when he gets out. I'll have a better job. It's kind of win-win. And, um, and he realizes too late that that's not a good argument. Uh, not good in the fact that it, it doesn't work and, and not good in the sense that uh, uh, it's, it's bad, it's, immor it's immoral, it's unethical. And <laughs> I, I think the fact that this, the public, the crowd, uh, Federber's wife realizes that too and weeps and sheds a tear is, uh, I can see why they made that important. Or, or thought that that might be important. So a couple things here too. This reversal is um, obviously he came into their midst, into their tent. Tatum did, and uh, vindicated by all that's happened, and told them off. And now they're doing that to him. And uh, of course, the kid, sort of Herbie, springs to his defense. I like I like that reversal. The other thing is um I do stand by my thing that I think Herbie could have been the thing that I mean could have been the thing that gets Tatum to realize how crazy all of this is and to grow a conscience because the kid the kid could have been, you know, could have started doing things on his own or doing things way worse than Tatum and uh, 
and uh, somehow it somehow seeing the way he's corrupting this kid gets him to look in the mirror. That's that's like another version of the movie you could do. Although that that sort of um, dynamic has been done a lot in movies, but if they did it, it would have a a more because ultimately what 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 makes Tatum grow a conscience is is he just kind of realizes what Leo's going through where he was numb to it before. And and this is the second reversal, right? Mr. Nagel has his his leg up on the desk and uh, is sort of in the driver's seat, where in the prior conversation, it was certainly Tatum who was in the driver's seat. What a performance by Richard Gaines, too. I mean, he, uh, uh, it was a much more, in Double Indemnity, he was much more uh, subdued. It was almost like... Uh, uh, he was someone who didn't have a personality or or just um, thought so much of himself that he didn't have to uh, uh, put any inflection in his voice. You know, he's one of these sort of old money people who never had to develop a personality because they were so rich. But um, here he's this hot-headed sort of newspaper editor that you imagine might have come up the hard way and uh, doesn't take any bullshit. <laughs> there's um i think that's a 1950s thing he calls him fan uh kind of like pal i guess um there's this fascinating fascinating detail of the production uh or not the production but the, the sort of subsequent life of the movie uh ace in the hole after it was released uh wilder was sued for um plagiarism you don't sue for plagiarism. i mean you, essentially uh, it was an inter- intellectual property suit um there was this guy who alleged and and this is documented in the uh, uh to some extent in the book i have about wilder uh briefly there was this guy who at some point, had sent uh, a script to uh, or a story treatment to Wilder's production office. Um, and if you've ever worked for, a, I've worked for a literary agent before. I've worked for a publishing house. I've, I mean, if you worked for any any place that gets sent uh, unsolicited unsolicited stories or unsolicited manuscripts or um, anything like that, there's often no realistic way they can all be read or even opened sometimes. Um, there really is no way to, um, know whether the person in charge is actually, how much of them the person in charge is actually reading. Usually there's a team of people who, you know, kick the, the cream of the crop up, uh, and obviously this is a replay, a uh, recapitulation, as I said before, of the uh, opening of the movie. Uh, despite coming in in a, uh, into town on a, with a jalopy in a, in a rundown car, he was sort of had that swagger at the beginning of the movie, and now he comes in defeated. I think I don't know if him being stabbed with this, by Jan Sterling in the side of his abdomen, uh, off to one side, is, is a Christ thing that they're trying to do be another use of religion that doesn't work for me but um because of course the 
in the passion story, Christ is uh, deliberately wounded by the Romans when he's uh, crucified. He's deliberately wounded alongside one, one side of his body, and they actually stick, uh, I think, vinegar in the wound to torture him. Um, I love that last line. I'm a thousand dollar a day newspaper man. You can have me for nothing. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, Wilder was sued, uh, and he actually settled with the person for $15,000. Evidently, this man had sent his production office, uh, Wilder's production office, a story treatment or a script that was very similar to Ace in the Hole. And uh, Wilder, some time later, ended up making Ace in the Hole. And so this guy saw the movie and uh, sued. And uh, the fact that Wilder settled for around $15,000 means that there probably was some merit to the suit. But, um, I don't know, it's just fascinating when those those cases get settled. But you know that uh, anytime you have, I mean, I, I believe that it's more likely that Wilder never saw the guy's manuscript. And there's such a thing as parallel writing. You know, uh, uh, some somebody comes up with basically the same story that someone else came up with. So, uh I, I I would give Wilder the benefit of the doubt on that one. I don't know a lot about it, but um, it seems like a kind of story that uh, definitely could be uh, uh, two people could uh, uh, sort of come upon at once. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm sure I'll do more Wilder movies. I love the last line, uh, the way it uh, not just calls back to the, the way that... Um, Tatum got the job in the first place working uh, for the paper, but the, the way it kind of um, lets us know that he, uh, in this moment when he dies, or collapses anyway, that he is fully knowledgeable of um, the fact that he is um, might have succeeded in what he was trying to do in, in make his rate go up and, and get back to the big time. But the fact that he understands that he's uh, sort of worthless as a person now, that he's he's done so much, wreaked so much havoc and, and gotten a man killed, that he's he's basically um, sort of worthless as a, as a, as a human. He's, he's lost so much of his humanity in doing that, and it, and it completely wasn't worth it. And... Um, so you can have me for nothing is a very, very sad line. I, I think that's a, uh, a very dark movie. A, a very, uh, it's easy to see in some sense why this movie didn't go over well, uh, or didn't do as well in '51. But at the same time, like I say, there there were contemporaneous reviews and and people who got it. So anyway, uh, look forward to doing much more Billy Wilder and uh, definitely more Kirk Douglas too. Uh, I never mentioned my whole thing with um, movie stars when they're in their own movies as opposed to being in a movie with another movie star. I don't know. Uh, just real briefly, I just think it's um, one of those cool things that some movie stars can carry a movie by themselves much better. And some movie stars are much better when they're sort of sparring or playing with other movie stars. Um, I always thought 
my favorite actor, Betty Davis, was very good when she would do movies with, she was at her best when she would do movies with other stars, when she kind of got her dander up by the presence of these other stars or, or, you know, she was, when she was agitated or angry or unhappy, she sort of did her best work in her career. (laughs) And, uh, but Douglas is one, someone who, although he's very good in movies where he's, um, uh, you know, the bad and the beautiful or, uh, movies where he's in there in the mix with other movie stars. I do think he's kind of one of those guys who can just carry a movie by himself by being the only movie star in the movie. And I find that that dynamic is sort of uh, so wonderful. Um, and, and it's a rarer thing, it seems, these days when um, so many of even the supporting actors in movies that come out today are people who are known to us or known to audiences in some sense. Um, you know, the, the, there are very few supporting actors in uh, the 50s who uh, people could name. Uh, but these days, you know, I know who Jay Baruchel is. I know who, you know, uh, these people who have, have supporting turns in movies. Uh, so the idea of, a, of an actual star versus just a, a sort of actor that you've never seen before has kind of been watered down or, or blurred. But uh, I don't know. I'll describe that in another another time. I, I just think it's fascinating the way um, Kirk Douglas carries this movie all by himself. And uh, if his performance doesn't work, uh, the movie doesn't work. But uh, I think it's a beautiful movie, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.